Welcome to this week's episode of Indubitably. I'm Kelly. I'm Josh. And I hope everyone has had a fantastic week since we last talked to you. (laughs) Yeah, because we're back again with another one of our depressing episodes. (laughs) Yep. We're here this week to talk about nuclear Armageddon. But before we get into that fun topic, we thought that this might be an interesting opportunity to break the fourth wall, if you will, and discuss for a second a bit about how we actually choose our topics each week. Typically, we're searching for new and interesting topics because we never want to get stale. We always want to bring something exciting to you, our listeners. Right. And there's there's so many subjects in the world. I can't tell you how many conversations Kelly and I have had where we come up with a really good area to focus on for an episode and then realize that it's really similar to something we've just done in the last two or three episodes. And so we table it and we try to reintroduce it. Now that we've been doing this for coming up on a year, we try to introduce it, you know, two, three months later. And what happens is we often find that there are topics in the news that really warrant our attention and they end up being pretty similar to things that we've discussed previously. So then we have to make a decision. How do we approach this in a way that keeps it fresh for you all? Right. And so up until now, we've kind of prioritized just the diversity of subjects, which keeps things interesting. We hope it helps inform people on a a multitude of different subjects that affect our lives and help our listeners see the debates or controversies in areas where you might not typically think about them. But like what Kelly's saying, I mean, certain issues are so intrinsically interconnected with one another. And while it's impossible to fully examine those connections in an hour, breaking our usual habit of prioritizing diversity of topics between our episodes and stringing a couple of related ones together might be useful. And one of the places that this is certainly true is when it comes to international relations. And if you look at some of the most impactful actors in today's episode about nuclear weapons, you'll probably hear some overlap with some of the other episodes we've done in the past, including last week's episode on prisoner exchange and extradition. Right. Some of the big nuclear actors, United States, Russia, China, some of the big actors when it came to prisoner exchange, United States and Russia, two big ones with Brittany Griner right now. We talked about China when we talked about Taiwanese independence. We talked about Russia again when we talked about the assassination of Vladimir Putin. Listen to that episode. Not only is there going to be some overlap with the countries that we discussed, but even the subject matter, like we're going to discuss today, in our sanctions episode, we discussed heavily the idea of nuclear weapons and deterrence using economic or other political coercion. And so our goal for today is hopefully not to bore our listeners by revisiting topics that we've had in the past, but give a more complete view of that interconnectivity and hopefully a better understanding of how all these things are related and what impact it has potentially on our lives. And with that, roll the intro. Today, we will be talking about nuclear Armageddon, (laughs) the likelihood of attacks, and preventative measures. So how do we go about doing this? The thing is, any talk about potentials for nuclear weaponry is highly speculative. So far, this has been a line that after the U.S. used them for the first time at the end of World War II, 
and we realized exactly how horrific they are, no one has been willing to cross since. However, that's not to say that countries have not been threatening to change that. And various scenarios around the world have seemingly inched closer and closer to this potential doomsday outcome, as well as some non-conventional nuclear threats that are also seeming more and more likely. So what we've done is we've identified which countries most experts agree are at the highest risk, and for the purposes of this show, ordered them in what we believe, at least, is the likelihood that they become the victim of a nuclear incident. Before we go into that ordered list, let's provide a little bit of context. For starters, there are nine countries which currently have nuclear weapons. Those are Russia, the United States, China, France, the United Kingdom, Pakistan, India, Israel, and North Korea. And out of all of those countries, do you know how many nuclear bombs currently exist in the world? I know that we're reducing the number of nuclear bombs that exist, but I don't know if we have an exact pinpointed number because some of these countries are a little secretive. Mm -hmm. That's true. But the estimate is that there are currently 12,700 nuclear bombs uh, still at play. That's a lot. (laughs) More than enough to uh, (laughs) make me worry. Yeah, absolutely. And besides the nine countries that we have listed, I think there's also an X factor that's worth discussing and will come up later in the episode. And that would be Iran, who has enough material for one nuclear bomb. And actually, in the last month has claimed that it now has the capability to produce one, although they haven't said that they're actually going to go through with it. That does seem to be the implication. Now that we know how many countries have at least the materials, if not the full capabilities to detonate a nuclear weapon, how many times have nuclear bombs actually been utilized in in a combat situation? Well, in a combat situation, like we mentioned in the preface, it's been utilized twice. I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with the names Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, This was in 1945, towards the end of World War II, where the United States used these weapons against Japan and killed 129,000 and 226,000 people, respectively. The scale of death and destruction that came about because of just two nuclear detonations sufficiently scared the world and made such an impact that people are genuinely afraid of their use, especially people who grew up in the nuclear age, in the Cold War specifically, being legitimately afraid that a nuclear strike could happen and level your hometown seemed really probable. As much as 129,000 and 226,000 people is a uh, mind-boggling number, especially compared to something like September 11th, and obviously don't want to belittle the impact of that, but that was 3,000 people. So (laughs) the result of our nuclear attack on Japan was a hundred times bigger than that. And even that number pales in comparison to what the potential destruction could be now, considering the advancements in nuclear technology and the fact that the bombs we dropped on Japan are archaic by today's standards. Exactly. And what's more, since then, there have been over 2,000 nuclear tests conducted to date to hone and refine the capabilities of nuclear weapons, but often also to signal sort of a posture to the rest of the world about nuclear capabilities. 
Right. So while the optimist in me would like to think that the U.S. and the world realized that the use of nuclear weapons was a mistake, uh, they certainly haven't realized it enough to stop advancing, testing, and considering the use of the weapons in the future. It also could be attributed to Hiroshima and Nagasaki becoming less part of our living memory. Soon there are going to be very few people, if any, who were alive, adults at the time the nuclear strikes happened. And that becomes a remote possibility when you don't have people who lived through that experience being able to warn about the experience. Right. And I think because of that, the optimist in me every day reading the news shrinks a little bit and the pessimist starts to grow. And so that brings us to our list that we'll be using to structure the rest of the episode of countries that we think face a a real concern when it comes to nuclear weaponry. And we've ordered this again from what we believe are the nations that are realistic but least likely to face this threat up to the countries that face the most immediate, most realistic, most existential concerns of being the victims of a nuclear catastrophe. And with that, let's start with what we think are the two countries that we believe exist under a realistic threat of a nuclear attack, but the probability of actually experiencing an attack is the lowest on our list, and that would be India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. India and Pakistan have been in conflict for over 70 years, largely over the disputed territory in Kashmir. And until now, there have been five major crises between crises, crises, crises. I like crises. Sounds more plural to me. Between India and Pakistan under the shadow of nuclear weapons. Most recently in February of 2019, not that long ago, a Kashmiri militant suicide bombing of an Indian paramilitary convoy in Kashmir killed more than 40 people. And that resulted in the exchange of artillery fire across the so-called line of control that separates the Indian and Pakistani-controlled areas of Kashmir. The crisis quickly escalated, and Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan declared in a national televised address that any further escalation between both countries would be beyond the leader's control. Khan warned that with, quote, the weapons you have and the weapons we have, can we afford miscalculation? Shouldn't we think that if this escalates, what it will lead to? And this is one of the challenging things about this issue and this episode and trying to determine where the threats are and where the threats are not. We have leaders of countries saying things on both ends of the spectrum. Hey, we should de-escalate. We need to worry about this nuclear weaponry. We would never use it. We just have it as a defense. And on the flip side, some people saying, hey, we have nuclear weapons and we are not afraid to use them if you cross this line that we've drawn in the sand. And how much of that is legitimate? How much of that is posturing? Without knowing the answer to those questions, it's very hard for countries to make decisions and to really analyze what the real threat to the world is from nuclear weaponry. And in this instance, there are additional factors that complicate everything, considering the partition of Pakistan and India is fairly recent in world history. And these are border countries that both possess nuclear capabilities, which lead to tensions that might not exist in a lot of the other standoffs that we see around the world. (laughs) Yeah, Like, for example, in March of this year, India's defense ministry said that a missile had 
accidentally fired into Pakistan after a quote technical malfunction. That's a that's a great accident to have between two nuclear countries that don't like each other. You imagine if we just accidentally fired weapons into Canada once in a while? Oh, I kind of wish. I mean, what? Your anti-Canada stance is something we might need to dig into at some point. <laughs> if we nuked Canada, they'd probably apologize for being in the way of our missile. Okay. <laughs> to add to the concern when it comes to India and Pakistan, neither one of them has signed on to the non-proliferation treaty. In fact, Both have been increasing their nuclear arsenals as most countries around the world are working to dismantle them. India has committed to a nuclear doctrine of no first use and said it would not use a nuclear weapon at all against a non-nuclear state. Most countries are non-nuclear, but there's a few that might get kind of nervous about that proclamation. Yeah, I wonder how Pakistan feels when India says we won't nuke anybody that doesn't have nukes, Pakistan, with your nukes. On the flip side, though, Pakistan has pledged no first use against non-nuclear weapon states as well, but it's ambiguous in its policy against countries that have nuclear weapons, in specific India. So there's nothing out there explicitly saying that they would not offensively use nuclear weapons against other nuclear powers. Obviously, there's tension here, and this sounds pretty horrible. So why is India-Pakistan so low on our list of countries with a realistic threat? So historically, like we said, this conflict has been going on for over 70 years. There have been five major crises between the two countries while they were nuclear powers, and it has not escalated to a nuclear conflict yet. And I think this is a good time to introduce the theory of MAD mutually assured destruction, which might, in this particular situation, go a long ways towards explaining exactly why we haven't seen escalation yet. The traditional school of thought is that once two countries establish secure nuclear arsenals and can withstand attack and still hit back, they enter a state of mutually assured destruction, or MAD, which is the best geopolitical acronym out there. Mm -hmm. Even the loser in a war can devastate the other civilians, making military victory and relative military power all but meaningless. And so the result, according to this logic, is that nuclear-armed adversaries will behave quite differently from countries without nuclear weapons. Afraid of nuclear escalation, these sorts of rivals will avoid arms races, stay out of wars, de-escalate crises, refrain from threatening one another's core interests, and just in general, maintain the status quo, which certainly seems to be the case in the India-Pakistan situation. There are some issues with this theory, especially because the nature of the world has changed quite a bit since nuclear weapons were first developed. We will talk about those later in other conflicts we're planning to discuss with you today. One of the big problems with mutually assured destruction, though, and this is a bit counterintuitive, is that it could potentially be the reason that we're in this situation of 12,000 nukes spread across the globe in the first place. The time between when nuclear fission was discovered by accident and when nuclear weapons were created was relatively short. The scientists who developed this technology knew immediately that this could be harnessed for weapons and therefore decided to go ahead and pursue weapons development because there was a belief that Other scientists would soon make this discovery as well, and with this discovery would then also develop weapons probably for our enemies. We're really good at taking (laughs) scientific 
advancements and turning them into weapons. I'm really surprised we haven't weaponized Velcro yet or Tang. I'm sure that they're in weapons we just don't know about. But to give you a little more context about how the the tension around this subject emerged, this was discovered in like 1939 Germany. So there was a strong incentive for all of the global powers to take this and harness it and turn it into something to make sure no other country could beat them to the punch, quite literally. Uh, And all of this is, of course, relying on the concept that if they have it and we have it, nobody's going to use it. So the existence of MAD as a principle was the justification for the spread of nuclear technology and nuclear weaponry. Right. There's only one instance in which it makes sense to detonate nuclear weapons offensively, and that's when no other countries have any nuclear weapons that they can also detonate, which is the exact situation we found ourselves in with the bombings in Japan. Mm-hmm. And so there's sort of an existential problem with the concept of mutually assured destruction from the start when it comes to nuclear warfare, but it also has issues when it comes to conventional warfare. And the idea here is that some people suggest that it can increase low-level military provocations. So countries can be more aggressive if they have nuclear weapons, betting that the opponent's fear of escalation will constrain their response. That means that the existence of nukes makes conflict more likely, and if that country miscalculates, more dangerous. I believe they call this game that they're playing, which is a mind game as well as a military game, brinksmanship. Or chicken. Or I like that you said betting because I think there's a lot of gambling and posturing and bluffing that's going on as well. Mm-hmm. And that's what, again, that's what makes this so scary is we'll never know if our predictions are right or wrong. Military leaders of countries will never know if their predictions are right or wrong until it's too late. So all of this explains why we have India and Pakistan where we do on this list, because even though they obviously have unkind thoughts towards each other in a lot of military aspects, the knowledge they both possess nuclear weapons is enough of a deterrent that they will not probably do an offensive strike against one another because the retaliatory promise that that comes with is too devastating a possibility. I think we need to publish the indubitably dissertation on the unkind thought theory. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of psychology that goes along with this. And wrapping up like 70 years of international strife with the phrase unkind thoughts is probably a little underselling it, but it's not wrong. (laughs) It's subtle. I like it. (laughs) So the next country that we've got on our list uh, in order of least to most likely to experience a nuclear attack would be near and dear to my heart, the United States of America. Near and dear to your heart. I mean, you know, anybody who's listening to the show knows what I mean by that. <laughs> knows how I feel about this country. <laughs> I live here and I would like I, I would like not to be nuked. Okay, that that's fair. <laughs> that's about as far <laughs> as it goes. So which cities, okay, you're Russia, you're China, you're Iran, countries that have unkind thoughts towards us and you're going to nuke the United States, which cities would you choose? Part of it depends on the capability, how far they can actually send a missile carrying a nuclear payload. For Russia and China, those would probably be the big West Coast cities, specifically Los Angeles, San Francisco. In a world in which they have no constraints of where they would fire missiles, then they would probably also have DC, New York, maybe Chicago, 
Houston is highly populated. So big, big population centers where the impact would be very dramatic. Right. And these cities, New York, Chicago, Houston, LA, San Francisco, of course, two in California, lucky me, Washington, D.C., they're some of the largest and densest in the country. And they're also home to critical infrastructure like energy plants, financial hubs, government facilities, and wireless transmission systems. So I think most experts agree that these would be the likely targets of a nuclear attack. So if we live in one of these places, what do we do? How do we stop ourselves from being attacked? Beyond just the idea of mutually assured destruction and the psychological games that are played surrounding nuclear weapons was the Cold War era emergence of missile defense systems, which were championed specifically by people like Ronald Reagan. And I guess the idea behind the missile defense shield, besides the obvious, they launch a missile at us, we shoot it down, nothing happens. It also just provides a deterrent. Could you imagine if you're Russia and you launch a nuclear weapon against the United States and it gets shot down and you're sort of stuck there? Uh, hey, you guys, we're just kidding. It was an accident. We didn't mean it. Don't bomb us back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that being in a position like that for Russia was a realistic enough threat that that helped discourage them from actively detonating any nuclear weapons in the United States. But the question is, and and back then, which is why people were critical of the system in the first place, and even now, how effective would a missile defense system be? Uh, the analogy that's commonly used is you're trying to hit a bullet with a bullet. It would be difficult, but a lot of these weapons, especially as they've developed over the past few decades, are guided with satellite technology. So the accuracy is probably a lot better than just randomly shooting a bullet in the sky. Please don't do that ever. <laughs> well, we've been testing this since 1999, and we have attempted 19 times to shoot down a simulated missile. Guess how many of those times we were successful? I'm guessing probably not 100% of the time. More like about 50% of the time. Out of 19 attempts, we were successful 11 times. Half is better than none. I okay. Guess. <laughs> but that means if somebody attacks, let's say the ones I care about, Los Angeles and San Francisco, one of them's getting blown up. Well, maybe you shouldn't live there. <laughs> well, I mean, for various reasons. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so the other limitations of this system is, you know, A, right off the bat, it's just highly unreliable. But B, it potentially works against ground-based systems, but unlikely against satellite-launched missiles, which seems to be the direction countries like Russia or China, which would potentially be two of the bigger threats to the United States, seems to be the direction that they're moving. There's a possibility this would be an effective deterrent against a country like North Korea, which both has a pretty small nuclear arsenal and launches from their country rather than from space. It wouldn't be a deterrent for countries like Russia. And I think this is probably why Missile defense systems are less championed now than they were 30 or 40 years ago. Right. I, I mean, if Russia were to maybe launch an unauthorized missile or an accidental launch, there's a chance we could shoot that down. But they have 6,000 missiles. And if they intended to attack the United States, they are not going to be launching a missile because of the things we've been talking about, mutually assured destruction, because of this missile defense shield. They would be launching a large number of these missiles to the point where even if only half only half get through, we're still pretty screwed. So at that point, 
these systems seem largely useless? If they fire 6,000 at once, we can always try zigzagging. (laughs) As a country? Yeah. All right, everybody run to the left. Now everybody run to the right. (laughs) The United States isn't the only country that has a missile defense system. There are other countries that have also taken other means to protect themselves from a potential nuclear strike. And this is important when it comes to implications, again, to mutually assured destruction. Mutually assured destruction, one of its other limitations is that it assumes relatively equivalent levels of technology between countries. So originally, two countries with nuclear weapons don't attack each other because they blow each other up. But now, if one of those countries develops a defense system that can stop their opponents from attacking them, all of a sudden, MAD is completely eliminated. So despite the push to reduce nuclear stockpiles and eliminate the threat of nuclear conflict, there remains the pressure to have a nuclear arsenal that can at least be enough of a deterrent from being attacked and why the United States will not in all likelihood abandon having nuclear weapons in the future and therefore still has a position of being a a possible target for an aggressive strike. Realistically, do we think that this is the greatest nuclear threat to the United States? Conventional wisdom and Kelly wisdom seem to be pretty in agreement here that the more likely threat of a nuclear detonation in the United States would be presented by non-state actors in the form of terrorism and likely in the form of small, basically briefcase-sized weapons known as dirty bombs. Right, a dirty bomb or a radiological dispersal device if I'm trying to sound smart here, is a speculative radiological weapon that combines radioactive material with conventional explosives. So the idea behind this kind of weapon is to contaminate the area around the dispersal agent or the conventional explosion with radioactive material. Uh, Obviously, in the context of a terrorist attack, this would be pretty horrible for anybody in that area. But also in military operations, it serves as a area denial device against civilians or opposing troops. Due to the size of weapons like these, there's a significant fear of them being detonated on public transportation or inside the lobby of a government building. There's very little capability of actually being able to screen for these types of weapons because you would have to effectively screen everyone. So how would somebody get a dirty bomb? I think there's probably two different ways that this could come about. Uh, The first is they could steal one. And this is where I think it's important we recognize earlier that while we have nine countries with official nuclear weaponry, there is Iran with, at the very least, the materials to produce a nuclear weapon, if not the technology. They probably have it locked up really well. Um, Except they probably don't. (laughs) So there's a danger for some of these less stable regimes who, yeah, Theoretically, if you are advanced enough as a government to have this technology, you should be advanced enough to lock it up real well. But that doesn't seem like the case in a country like Iran or a country like Iraq or Syria. Another possibility is that weapons like these could be distributed or bought and sold. There are organizations who experience state sponsorship of their terrorism, such as Al-Qaeda or ISIS, and could likely have... Countries with unkind thoughts towards other countries use those terrorist organizations to engage in small, like, proxy wars with dirty bombs. See, I'm telling you, this unkind thought theory is going to take off. 
Yeah, I'm like so innovative. <laughs> and unfortunately for us, the same countries we're talking about that are advanced enough to have this technology or have these materials, but also potentially destabilized to the point that it could get out, are also the countries where these sorts of terrorist organizations like Al Qaeda or ISIS exist. And even more unfortunately for us, as in the United States, these are also the countries that have unkind thoughts about us. This isn't to say that every terrorist group is going to detonate a dirty bomb in like the DC metro. Most terrorist organizations don't have the kinds of resources or access that would enable them to do this. But the organizations that do have ties to government and therefore government-funded resources are concerns that we legitimately can't ignore. And besides the Middle East, we also have a country like North Korea that might decide the best thing it could do with some of its legitimate nukes. Now we're not just talking about dirty bombs anymore, but an actual nuclear weapon would be to sell it to a group in Iraq. And what's scary about this is just like asymmetrical warfare in general, since 9-11, we've been struggling with how as a country do we fight against groups or do we fight against ideologies? And it's very difficult. It's a, it's a new thing and we haven't gotten an answer to it. Now, how do we fight against one of those groups that has a weapon large enough to pose a legitimate existential threat to nations? I think we could refer back to our ransom episode for some of the ways that we've discussed are effective at deconstructing terrorist ideologies and eliminating the threat of terrorism more effectively. But at the point that they're already a terrorist organization and they already have access to or the actual materials constituting a dirty bomb, that's probably too late. Yeah. And how do we respond if we are relatively sure that the government of Iran gave these materials to a terrorist organization and then that terrorist organization attacks the United States, detonates one of these bombs, kills probably at the very least tens of thousands of people. Uh, how do we respond against the government of Iran when we don't have definitive proof that they were the masterminds behind an attack like this? So do we attack them and hope that we're right? Do we not attack them because we can't make a proven connection between the two groups. It's really hard to decide how to respond to an attack like this, especially if the country that we're responding to, say North Korea, is a nuclear power. And this is why the whole concept of mutually assured destruction is eliminated in this scenario, because you can't even fully know who the offender is that did the quote-unquote first strike. Mm -hmm. And so speaking of terrorist threats, especially originating in the Middle East, I think that moves us to the next country on our list, which is very literally related to the United States, and that would be Israel. I think that any sort of threat that we can point to targeting the United States, it's very likely that we can make those same assumptions that there's a threat that exists in equivalent fashion or an even higher threat, I think, when it comes to the case of Israel. Israel is an interesting case, not only because of its political stance and its alliance with the United States, but the actual geographical placement of Israel puts it into a very contentious zone, surrounded by a lot of countries that don't even agree with necessarily its right to exist there, and the religious and ideological differences of the region that often flare into open conflict. Right. We have to worry about potentially 
Iran and their unkind thoughts towards us. But in order for any of those thoughts to manifest in an attack, they've got to find a way to get this bomb out of Europe, across an ocean, either through security in the United States, through security in Mexico, through security in Canada, and somehow to a city. And that's a pretty big task to undertake. Israel, on the other hand, doesn't have those sort of geographical protections that we have. And I think that puts them higher on our list in terms of the threat that they're facing, just because of the ease of use of even if it's one of these dirty bombs carried across the border in a suitcase. One thing that may counteract the idea of Israel being kind of a sitting duck for a nuclear strike is that it does have an alliance with the United States with a pretty substantial nuclear arsenal, which may, in the eyes of the people who have the unkind thoughts towards Israel, give enough of a probability that the United States would retaliate on behalf of Israel to deter them from even engaging in a nuclear strike in the first place. That's interesting, though, because I'm not convinced that the U.S. resolve to strike retaliatorily on behalf of Israel is, well, certainly as high as it would be if the U.S. itself was attacked. But I wonder with the kind of conflicts that are going on right now, which we'll get to later in the list if people hadn't guessed already, conflicts with China over Taiwan, conflicts with Russia over Ukraine, Do you think that the United States would risk or engage in another military conflict in the Middle East as a retaliation for an attack on Israel? I do. I think there is substantial political pressure on the United States to defend Israel that comes from both within and outside of this country that to not stand in alliance and to leave them on their own for self-defense when we have historically been providing them with so much support would be political suicide for whatever leader made that call. But what if, again, the attack doesn't come from Iran officially, but a splinter group of ISIS that somehow managed to procure some of this material and take credit for this attack on Israel? Do you think that in that situation, the U.S. would be willing to go to war with a nation over an attack from a splinter terrorist group? And knowing that, do you think that's the route that a country like Iran or Syria would take to attack Israel? To answer the, would we go to war with a country because of an attack from a non-state actor? Absolutely. We've done it a few times. Right. But those, those were attacks against us directly. And because of the emotional attachment and political connection between the United States and Israel, I do think the prevailing wisdom would be an attack against Israel is as devastating as an attack against the United States itself. I think that they, the United States government would choose to defend. Mm. So what's interesting about that is, even if that's our opinion, the question is, is it the opinion of the leadership of Iran? And that's another thing that goes into mutually assured destruction. That's another thing that makes these scenarios so hard to predict how they'll play out, is if the leadership in Syria disagrees with you, and thinks that U.S. support for Israel might be waning, or thinks that the U.S. resources are just spread a little bit too thin, and they're willing to wager their own country on those predictions and therefore carry out an attack, their miscalculation can result in a massive international conflict. We're back to gambling. (laughs) We're back to making bets about what other parties think. And I think that illustrates a big issue with nuclear weapons that don't exist with most other conflicts is that there is as much a psychological game at play as there is realpolitik, essentially. If we're going to talk about um, posturing 
and political gamesmanship. I think that moves us very nicely to our next country, region on the list, and that would be Taiwan. And referencing back to our intro for the episode, we have an entire episode on Taiwanese independence where we talk in depth about the potential for Chinese retaliation, Chinese offensive behavior, etc. So if you want to hear that, check out that episode. We don't want to necessarily rehash it, but I think there's some unique argumentation and some unique things to consider here when it comes to nuclear weapons specifically. I got very nervous when you suggested Taiwan might be a country because that is one of the things that could really set off China. That's going to get San Francisco bombed. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe we should be telling people we live in different cities than we actually live. I live in Houston now. That's one of the potential targets, dude. Yeah, but I'm not actually there, so I don't care. Well, our Texas listeners. (laughs) (laughs) My bad. Apologies. (laughs) It's fun to laugh about nuclear Armageddon, but in all seriousness, uh, China within the last month began extensive construction on the Lopner test site. And satellite imagery suggests that China might be building a sixth tunnel, allowing them to conduct nuclear-related testing anytime. The resumption would mean the first since 1996. Right. This is a location that they used to use to test their nuclear armaments. It has been dormant for the last 20 to 30 years. And as the Taiwanese situation has escalated, they seem to be resuming activities there. And maybe this resumption in and of itself is the posturing difficult to tell for sure. Or maybe this is a legitimate operation on their part, preparing for the use of nuclear weapons in this conflict. And this leads us to a different type of nuclear weapon category that we haven't really discussed yet, which is tactical nuclear weapons. Weapons which are obviously still devastating, but not to the same degree as the ones that could essentially level a country. They're designed to be used on a battlefield in military situations mostly with friendly forces in proximity and perhaps even on contested friendly territory. Yeah, the the challenging thing here is that tactical nuclear weapons, tactical is a largely ambiguous term, as many of these have yields in the tens or potentially hundreds of kilotons. And that is several times larger than the weapons used in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. This adds complications to the way that the United States regards Taiwan It hasn't taken an official stance that Taiwan is a country, but it does want to preserve peace or at least an absence of overt warfare and tension. And there are security agreements that are in place that help Taiwan remain autonomous and not have to be under Chinese rule directly. If something were to happen, which fractured that relationship and Taiwan was under attack from China, there is a possibility that the United States may be deterred from going to support Taiwan because of the tactical nuclear weapons that China possesses. Right. As we talked about in our Taiwanese independence episode, some U.S. and Taiwanese officials are predicting that China could invade Taiwan as soon as 2025. And while, again, we're throwing the word ambiguous out a lot in this episode, the U.S. policy of defense or support towards Taiwan is literally ambiguous. If we even wanted to support them militarily with, say, aircraft carriers, China could be using these tactical nuclear weapons as a way to keep the United States out of a zone in which they could help defend Taiwan. And that leaves China free to pursue conventional military operations in which they would most certainly overwhelm Taiwan and 
relatively short order. That's a tactical nuclear weapon, which can be utilized with a little bit more nuance. And perhaps all parties involved might be able to come out at the end of it with their country and their territory intact. But what if we're looking at something that is as devastating as previous nuclear detonations were? Right. So China almost certainly, at the point where they have invaded Taiwan, be willing to use these tactical nukes as they would be used on the ocean and besides Aquaman and the fish. Relatively few casualties, more of a deterrence to U.S. forces. But the question of would China be willing to use traditionally thought of nuclear weapons, a little bit trickier. I think if the goal is to keep Taiwan as part of China, it doesn't really make sense to bomb it with a with a real nuclear weapon and make it uninhabitable and that level of destruction of infrastructure. But what I think is more likely is what happens if the Chinese invasion of Taiwan were it to come up to fruition? What happens if that invasion fails? What happens if Taiwan is able to repel China? Then there is the possibility that China would cut its losses more or less and level Taiwan. This is like an angry 12-year-old who's had a, a toy taken away from them. They're like, you know what? If I can't have it, no one can and just tears it apart. I, I do think that it would be very unlikely to recreate peace or at least the absence of tensions with a territory so close to their own land that they had tried to invade but then didn't actually seize. Well, and one of the things that we talked about in our independence episode is China might see Taiwan as the first domino. Taiwan is certainly not the only region that's looking for independence from mainland China. And if those other regions see Taiwan successfully defend itself and secure officially its independence, it might embolden them to do the same. And I think that it would incentivize China to say, hey, all right, you know what, even if you're able to defend yourselves against our traditional military, you still lose. The best outcome that you can have here is reintegration into the Chinese government or nuclear destruction. This potential conflict sounds somewhat similar to an actual conflict we are experiencing right now with a nuclear power. And uh, what nuclear power could that be? Well, there's a very short list to choose from. <laughs> I guess this brings us to what we've identified as the country most likely to be victimized by a nuclear incidence, and that would be Ukraine, obviously at the hands of Russia. Hopefully, if you're listening to Indubitably and following us at our social media on Twitter and Facebook at Indubitably Pod, it should be no surprise to you that Russia in 2022 launched an invasion of Ukraine in an attempt to reincorporate that land into their possession. And as Russia is a nuclear power, this complicates the issue of how much control they can assert over Ukraine and how much support Ukraine will get from other countries because of the threat of a potential nuclear strike at the hands of Russia. And similar to China, one of the first concerns is, does the United States or other European countries look to support Ukraine militarily? And again, similar to China, Russia does have the capacity to deploy these tactical nuclear weapons to discourage that sort of support, leaving the conflict to be a Russia versus Ukraine simply conflict, which Russia feels relatively confident, although they're not doing a great job, but relatively confident that they could win, certainly more likely than if Ukraine had 
physical troops and support from the European Union or the United States. As with many of the other subjects we've discussed, there are different types of nuclear weapons in the Russian arsenal. And between tactical nuclear weapons and more traditional nuclear weapons that have more leveling power, we'll say, Russia would still have to mobilize them in a way that would be perceptible to other countries. Specifically, the United States can monitor them by satellite. It would be known that they are gearing up towards a nuclear attack. Right. Russia has an Object S site, which is where it houses many of these nuclear weapons. And this site is only 25 miles from the Ukrainian border. But in order to use one of these weapons, it would take hours for the weapon to be made combat ready, for warheads to be mated with cruise missiles or ballistic missiles, for hydrogen bombs to be loaded on planes. And if the US or the European Union observes the movement of these weapons through satellite surveillance, through cameras hidden on roads, through local agents, Archer with binoculars, that raises the question of what do we do about it? If we see Russia mobilizing nuclear weapons, do we sit by and hope that it's posturing or do we do something preemptively to deter their use? That's an interesting question because the United States has largely let this conflict remain between these two parties and not really gotten involved, probably to lessen the likelihood that there would be a possibility of a nuclear detonation. Both Russia is actually going to make real the threat that they have been issuing to the world for several decades now. Then it becomes less hypothetical and less political and more about the preservation of life. And that would probably change the motivations of the United States. But I am not sure that they would retaliate on behalf of Ukraine the same way they might for Israel. I think also this question of what happens if Russia mobilizes nuclear weapons depends on exactly how they do it. And I think experts agree that there's potentially four different ways this could happen. First one would be a nuclear detonation over the Black Sea, which would cause probably no casualties, but demonstrate theoretically a resolve to cross the nuclear threshold and a signal to the world that maybe there's worse to come. Option number two would be a decapitation strike against the Ukrainian leadership, attempting to kill the president and his advisors in their underground bunkers. And honestly, in this conflict so far, the Ukrainian president Zelensky has done an amazing job of keeping the country motivated and for everything we can observe, has been commanding his country's forces in a pretty effective manner. Option number three would be a nuclear assault on a Ukrainian military target, perhaps an airbase or a supply depot that's not intended to harm civilians. And then option number four would be the Hiroshima, the destruction of a Ukrainian city, causing mass civilian casualties and creating terror to propagate what would be intended as a swift surrender. It's important to keep in mind that that was the motivation behind the nuclear detonations on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's no way to know what the course of World War II would have taken without the nuclear detonations, but it was towards the end of the actual war and likely precipitated the end. The question then is, do we think any of these scenarios are realistic as we try to evaluate the level of risk to Ukraine. And there are certainly some arguments to suggest that these outcomes are unlikely, one of which is it's less likely that there would be a nuclear attack as fighting moves to southern Ukraine, 
which is the portion of the country which Russia hopes to occupy. If you're looking to move into a house, <laughs> uh, you don't want to blow up the house first. Uh, so they don't certainly wouldn't want to deal with nuclear fallout to this region. I also think that at this point, a nuclear detonation over the Black Sea would be pointless. Rather than demonstrating a resolve to cross the nuclear threshold, it might be seen as a lack of resolve as they pick a target that has no casualties. I actually disagree with that. I think that might be the most probable scenario of the four that are listed here because it would be the warning shot. And I think that that's a pretty common tactic used in global conflict is to give the opponent an opportunity to avoid escalation by letting them know the consequences if they don't. I don't think that Russia has any reservations about killing civilians. So I do think it's also somewhat likely that they may target a perhaps high value resource like a power plant or military base. But for the same reasons you said that they probably need those resources were they to retain control of Ukraine, that's less likely. And this leads us once again to a question of what would allies like the United States of the European Union do if Russia were to pursue one of these four options and leads us to the next country on our list, which is Russia. And Russia's in kind of a weird spot where we're going to talk about them right now, but I'm not convinced that they are the second most likely country to experience a nuclear attack. And in large part, because I think Russia's in control of their own destiny. I don't think that there's anybody out there who's looking to preemptively attack Russia um, with a nuclear weapon or otherwise. But I think if Russia gets a little bit mad, not mutually assured destruction, but angry, there's a very high possibility that they will be retaliated against. So they could simultaneously be the least likely country on our list to experience a nuclear attack or one of the most likely countries on our list. Russia is particularly interesting because it seems to defy a lot of the logic that other countries utilize when operating with the international community. It tends to do things that are so resolutely against the tide of, I guess, popular opinion for the ways other countries conduct themselves, that it's got a stubbornness to it. And that also speaks to maybe some volatility and an unpredictable nature. And I think it's important that we point out when we say Russia has some volatility to it, in large part, what we mean is Putin has some volatility to him. We can refer once again to our assassination debate, which we pretty much agree that he's not he's not working on all cylinders when it comes to thinking things through on a rational level. And that's very important, bringing us back to our second favorite theory of the episode behind the unkind thoughts theory, which was mutually assured destruction. One of the things that is a necessary prerequisite for MAD to work is that it assumes a sense of rationality and a sense of self-preservation. Mm-hmm. Mutually assured destruction only works not only if everybody has the nuclear weapons and is basically level with capabilities, but if the people who have the control over the nuclear weapons are cognizant of the realities of the nuclear weapons. At the point that Putin is seeming to invite a possibility that he may experience a nuclear strike, either he doesn't understand the capabilities of other countries' nuclear weapons, 
or he understands and thinks it's an acceptable cost. And I think there's also a a very similar thread running through the Russia-Ukraine situation as through the China-Taiwan situation, where if Putin were to lose this conflict, does he care anymore? No, I don't. I don't think that he cares anymore. I think that he has done away with trying to appease any relationships he has with other countries. He knew how he would be regarded by invading Ukraine and public opinion has turned against him and he doesn't care about that. So there is one final hope in this situation, and and that's just a real understanding of how a nuclear attack would work in terms of the human element of it. And it's not that everybody has an image of, you know, Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump or whoever standing in front of a red button and they hit the red button and then nukes launch. Uh, There's a whole lot of steps and a whole lot of people in between the leader of the country and the actual nuclear warhead. And so what that means is even if Putin were to order the launch of a nuclear weapon or weapons, there are subordinates down the line that need to push buttons. and. This could be the saving grace in this situation where even if Putin has decided, hey, I don't care, I'm willing to be mutually destructed. There are other people living in Russia that have families and things they care about and would say, you know what, I'm not going to follow an order that is most likely going to get my country bombed in retaliation, my family killed in a revenge nuclear strike. Maybe that could be our saving grace. Your little bit of optimism that you have left is is peeking through. I'm I'm just imagining that one guy, we'll call him Vitali. Is that a Russian name or an Italian name? Yeah, yeah. All right, Vitali. And Vitali says, comrades, we must hold strong for our country. Mother Russia refused to push the button. And with that, we come to the final country on our list, as in the country that is most likely to experience a nuclear detonation of some sort. And uh, that country is, a little bit cheating here, Ukraine. Again, except this time, we're going to be talking about Ukraine, not in terms of a traditional nuclear weapon, but the very real possibility of nuclear devastation through the means of a reactor meltdown. Like Chernobyl? Like Chernobyl, but bigger. The number one threat, I think, on the globe that exists right now is not a bomb, but it's a power plant. Russian forces in Ukraine have occupied the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and have been using it as a fortress from which to launch attacks on Ukrainian targets. And the idea is that they are using it as a shield and that Ukraine wouldn't risk attacking it for fear of a catastrophic result. And experts are saying that this would be worse than Chernobyl, which most of our listeners probably understand how bad that was and still is. And Zaporizhia is actually the largest nuclear plant in the entirety of Europe. To highlight that this is not just conjecture at this point, but there is a really strong possibility that something very catastrophic could happen. Literally in the last few hours before we sat down to record, the power plant experienced five explosions. This is so likely that in between us recording now and releasing on Sunday, in a couple of days, this could already be a settled issue. This power plant might have exploded. Every one of these attacks is the potential for a meltdown and a catastrophe. This sounds a little strange, though, because 
essentially that means Ukraine is attacking its own power plant. Is that right? What's complicated here, both sides are blaming each other and neither side seems to have an obvious motivation for doing this, right? Russia took over the power plant to use it as a shield on the assumption that Ukraine would not attack a nuclear site in its own country, but Russia has its own people there. So why would Russia be attacking it? And I think going back to our conversation about Putin, I'm literally wondering if Russia would be willing to kill its own people in order to launch what essentially amounts to a nuclear attack on Ukraine in a way that circumvents the international community being able to accuse them of launching a nuclear weapon. That is an interesting question because it does seem like there is a certain amount of carelessness that Putin has about Russian citizens. The way that the soldiers who were part of the initial invasion in Ukraine were very poorly supplied and poorly trained, basically made them sitting ducks. That speaks to a level of carelessness on on the part of Russia, in my opinion. And I think if you compare that to the decision making that would have to go behind a Ukrainian attack of this power plant on its own soil, and even if they win this war and they push Russia out, the subsequent issues that they would have to deal with in terms of radioactivity, et cetera. I, I mean, as as movie-esque as it seems, I think the most realistic scenario is Putin is attacking this power plant despite Russian troops being there. As we are, as a global community, literally right in the middle of this whole situation as it's developing, it, it's impossible to say what the outcome will be but we encourage everybody to stay as apprised as possible and pay attention to what's happening in this situation because this is when things go from theoretical to really scary. Mm -hmm. And the reason why this tops our list as the most likely scenario of nuclear catastrophe in the world right now. So to recap the list, this is our opinion. You all know that you can always find us on Twitter or Facebook at Indubitably Pod if you have a different opinion in how this list should play out. But we think in order of least risky to most risky, we have India, Pakistan, the United States, Israel, Taiwan, Ukraine, and Russia is kind of a, a wild card floating around here. At the end of all of that, Upon assessing the likelihood of a potential nuclear strike and the retaliations that may or may not happen, that brings us to where we stand on the idea of whether or not we're going to actually have nuclear warfare realistically happen. Right. I suppose in our list of scenarios, there are those two final scenarios. Does everyone suffer a nuclear attack or does no one suffer a nuclear attack? Do we go back to a peaceful world pre? mutually assured destruction. Which which of these two do you think is more, if either, realistic? A few years ago, I would have said no one because at the time I felt like there was enough rationality and predictability in the global arena that kept mutually assured destruction in a tenuous but stable balance. At this point in time, I think that there are so many different elements at play that were not present even 20 or 30 years ago when engaging with nuclear weapons, not just the traditional nuclear weapons that can level a city, but the tactical weapons 
the volatility of the political players in place. We didn't even really talk about North Korea's leadership, but Russia's leadership is definitely a question mark in terms of acting in their own self-interest when it comes to the nuclear issue. But then the non-state actors who could potentially devastate an entire city with a very small, imperceptible amount of nuclear material. The way that this world is starting to become, I guess, more unstable and more volatile, I just see a possibility where something is going to happen that is going to either trigger a nuclear attack or a nuclear response. Um, That makes me feel like my optimism has completely gone by the wayside. So hopefully they hold off on doing this until after I die. (laughs) I was going to say, this seems to be the one time where I might be slightly more optimistic than you. I think that I agree the idea of nuclear weapons never being used is getting less and less probable. Whether it's in the next week, a nuclear meltdown in Ukraine, or within the next couple of years, a nuclear attack from Russia as they lose the war in Ukraine, or a couple of years after that, a nuclear attack by China against Taiwan. If they are repelled and Taiwan solidifies its independence militarily, one of these scenarios, it's it's hard to believe that none of them will come to fruition. I think that the response to that would be a retaliatory nuclear strike. Where we disagree, I think, is I'm hoping that sort of like the oh shit moment we had after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we would have a similar oh shit reminder that actually these bombs are kind of bad and there would be an immediate de-escalation after each side has launched their one attack. And then we have another period of 60 years until we have a new kind of weapon, the nuclear laser detonator machine robot that we end up in the same situation of facing an existential military crisis again. But by that time, you're right, we'll both be dead. And we won't have to worry about it. This is a dynamic issue in that there are things that are happening right now that are affecting how this topic will play out in the future. So we'll do our best to keep you apprised of all of those issues, as well as everything we've talked about today, which you you can see links to so many different things we've already brought to you in other episodes. And uh, until next time, this has been Josh and Kelly signing off from Houston and Washington, D.C. Yep. That's where we are. (laughs) Take care.